It's a new week and a new episode of People Are Wild. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host, and I'm hoping no one threatens me with a good time. Speaking of time, let's not waste it. So I have lit a Spice Girls prayer candle, take a guess on which one it is, and listen to Hoobastank's The Reason on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. This is the story of a nurse who ended up with Ebola first. And while she looks so sad in quarantine, there is a happy ending. She survived. Oh yeah, that was definitely my horribly off-key homage to nine days. Where did those guys end up, actually, I wonder? Probably in some field with the calling, wondering how they can go wherever you will go. But the subject matter for this episode is a hot one, like seven inches from the midday sun. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I gotta like slow it down with all these references and get focused here. Focus up. We are back in the year 2014, a year where Taylor Swift encouraged all of us to shake it off and Megan Trainer taught us all that apparently some things are all about that base, about that base, about that base, but no trouble. And in Dallas, Texas, in that first week or so of October, there would be a number of lives changing from paths that were crossing at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital. Now, remember back to the previous episode about Thomas Eric Duncan, the 45-year-old welder who recently came to Dallas from Liberia, Liberia having been hit especially hard by the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Unfortunately for Thomas, he had been exposed to it before coming to Texas, and he would ultimately succumb to the illness on October 8, 2014. However, his story did not end there. And I feel as though I need to preface this whole episode by saying that I love the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They do amazing work within this nation and on a global scale with the research that they perform. Now, that being said, they really bungled it up on this. Plain and simple. There's no other way for me to say it. Now, how did I come to that conclusion? Well, on October 5th, 2014, the CDC announced it had lost track of a homeless man who had been in the same ambulance as Thomas. They announced that efforts were underway to find the man and place him in a comfortable and compassionate monitoring environment. Like, that is straight the quote from the CDC. Later that day, the CDC did announce that they were able to locate the man and that he was being monitored. Bless the CDC's heart. Now, in order to really figure out the ripple effect, contact tracing was able to zero in on up to 100 to 120 people who may have been in contact with those who had direct contact with Thomas after he had showed symptoms. Health officials later monitored 50 low and 10 high-risk contacts. These high-risk contacts being Thomas's close family members and three ambulance workers who took him to the hospital. Everyone who came in contact with Thomas was being monitored daily to watch for symptoms of the virus until October 20th, 2014, when health officials removed 43 out of the 48 initial contacts of Thomas Duncan from isolation. On November 7th, 2014, Dallas was officially declared Ebola-free after 177 monitored people cleared the 21-day threshold without becoming ill. Now, after releasing last week's episode, I got some, we'll say, intel from a listener who lived in the Dallas area during this time. The big thing they told me was how outside of the healthcare bubble, 
people really didn't know or understand how transmission of Ebola even worked. So it caused Dallas to become fearful and especially suspicious of all immigrants. Now, if you think about it, Dallas is in the top 10 largest cities in the United States, which means that it's pretty darn diverse with its immigrants and refugees. And to have this air of fear and suspicion permeate various communities within Dallas must have been awful, as well as terrifying. Being able to declare Dallas as Ebola-free might seem slightly odd in hindsight, but at the time, it no doubt meant that life could resume to normal for many of its residents. Now, officials at Texas Presbyterian Hospital have said that the hospital itself became like a ghost town during this time. Patients that had scheduled surgeries canceled them, and those seeking emergency care avoided the emergency room. I can tell you this, though. Some horrible people out there in this nation would use Ebola and the fear surrounding it to their advantage. Now, I can distinctly remember at the hospital that I was working at, which was not in Texas, that EMS saw a slight uptick in responding to calls where people would say that they thought that they were exposed to somebody who might have Ebola because they took a flight out of Dallas, only to later find out that the person wanted to be seen faster in the ER and they thought by using this tactic, it would allow them to do so. No, I'm not kidding. This seriously happened like a couple times. And every time it did happen, we had to take things seriously until further notice. Now, usually this person would drop the act pretty quick once the reality set in on how we would have to immediately quarantine that person. But somehow, people still thought that this was a brilliant strategy in order to be seen faster. And if you can't believe that this actually happened, well, there is a reason why this podcast is called People Are Wild. Now, back to Dallas. On the night of October 10th, Nina Pham, a 26-year-old critical care nurse who was involved and provided direct patient care with Thomas at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, reported a low-grade fever and was immediately placed in isolation. On October 11th, she tested positive for the Ebola virus and became the first person to contract the virus in the United States. On October 12th, the CDC confirmed the positive test results. Hospital officials said that Nina had worn the recommended protective gear when treating Thomas on his second visit to the hospital, and she had, quote, extensive contact, end quote, with him on multiple occasions. Now, Dr. Tom Frieden, the director of the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, initially blamed a breach in protocol for the infection. Now, the hospital's chief clinical officer, Dr. Dan Varga, said all staff had followed CDC recommendations. And Bonnie Costello of the National Nurses United said, quote, you don't scapegoat and blame when you have a disease outbreak. We have a system failure. That is what we have to correct, end quote. Dr. Frieden later spoke to, quote, clarify that he had not found fault with the hospital or the healthcare worker, end quote. The National Nurses United criticized the hospital for its lack of Ebola protocols and for guidelines that were constantly changing. In fact, Brianna Aguilar, a nurse who had cared for Nina Pham, criticized the hospital in an appearance on NBC's Today Show. She said that herself and others had not received proper training or personal protective equipment, 
and that the hospital had not provided consistent protocols for handling potential Ebola patients into the second week of the crisis. A report indicated that healthcare workers did not wear hazmat suits until Thomas's test results confirmed his infection due to Ebola, two days after his admission to the hospital. Dr. Frieden later said that the CDC could have been more aggressive in the management and control of the virus at the hospital. Nina Pham herself later stated that it was the nurses who were the ones who made the decisions regarding the protocols with taking care of Thomas Duncan. Nina and her fellow nurses made decisions about the safety precautions, such as increasing protection above the gloves, gowns, and masks recommended at the time. They not only continued to treat Thomas, but they also mopped the floors, disposed of medical waste, and showered after leaving his room. And it wasn't until the third day of treating Thomas that the hospital provided hazmat suits for the nurses. Even then, the suit was ill-fitting. It was a double XL suit for Nina's petite five-foot-nothing body. And just as a side note, when the CDC later rolled out the revised guidelines on how to do safety protocols and precautions, hospitals across the nation got training on how to put on their hospital's hazmat suits, I think. I mean, I can only go and speak off of what I was going through working in the ER at the hospital I was at. And I totally remember having an in-service about how to put on our hospital's hazmat suits, but I encountered a similar problem as Nina, in that the smallest hazmat suit we had in the whole hospital would not fit me at all. Also, I think in our hospital, we had about 10 hazmat suits in the whole hospital. And that's not really reassuring when you're trying to protect yourself while also providing quality patient care. Also not reassuring, on October 14th, a second critical care nurse at the same hospital, who was identified as the 29-year-old Amber Vinson, reported a fever. She was among the nurses who had provided treatment for Thomas. She was isolated within 90 minutes of reporting the fever. Now by the next day, she had tested positive for the Ebola virus. However, on the previous day, October 13th, she had flown on a Frontier Airlines flight from Cleveland to Dallas after spending the weekend in Ohio. Amber had an elevated temperature of 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit, which translates to about 37.5 degrees Celsius, before boarding the 138-passenger jet, this according to public health officials. Prior to this, Amber had flown to Cleveland from Dallas on October 10th, and flight crew members of both of these crews had been placed on paid leave for 21 days as they were being monitored due to the quarantine protocols. Now, during a press conference, everyone's favorite CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, stated Amber should not have traveled since she was one of the healthcare workers known to have had an exposure to Thomas. Now, passengers again of both flights were asked to contact the CDC as a precautionary measure to potentially undergo quarantine protocols. However, it was later discovered that the CDC had, in fact, given Amber permission to board a commercial flight to Cleveland. Truth bomb. You see, before her trip back to Dallas, she had spoke to the Dallas County Health Department and called the CDC several times to report her temperature before boarding her flight. A CDC employee who took her call checked a CDC chart, noted that her temperature was not a true fever, which is any temperature that is above 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit 
or 38 degrees Celsius or higher. The CDC would have deemed any temperature beyond that as high risk, but with her 99.5 temp, she was deemed not high risk and allowed to board the commercial flight. On October 19th, Amber's family released a statement detailing her government-approved travel clearances, as well as announcing that they had hired an attorney, Billy Martin. I don't blame them for a second. Now, as a precaution, 16 people in Ohio who had contact with Amber were voluntarily quarantined. Now, as of October 15th, 2014, there were 76 Texas Presbyterian Hospital healthcare workers being monitored because they had had some level of contact with Thomas Duncan. On October 16th, after learning that Amber had traveled on a plane before her Ebola diagnosis, the Texas Department of State Health Services advised all healthcare providers exposed to Thomas to avoid travel and public places until 21 days after their last known exposure. Now, for both of these nurses, they became media fodder like none other. Nina Pham battled Ebola at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital for more than a week before she was transported to the National Institutes of Health Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland for treatment on October 16th. She received a blood transfusion from Dr. Kent Brantley before receiving further experimental treatments and medications until she was ultimately declared virus-free on October 24th. Now, you might remember seeing video of her in her hospital room the day that she was going to be taken to be transferred to the Maryland hospital. Now, in it, it's very emotional. Nina and all of her healthcare providers, all of her team are in her room and there are some tears that are shed as they express well wishes, good luck, and their love for her. Now, what we didn't know at that time was that that video was obtained without Nina's consent and released without her consent. So there's that. Amber Vinson was declared Ebola-free on October 28th after she had been transported to Atlanta's Emory Hospital from Dallas on a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Gulfstream 3 jet by workers who were dressed from head to toe in biohazard suits. By the way, you can find a photo of Nina Pham arriving in Maryland after her transfer to the NIH hospital, where she and everyone else involved in her care are dressed head to toe in similar biohazard suits. Personally, I find it interesting just to see the level of personal protective equipment that was worn both for Nina and for everybody involved in her care. It's just a testament to a lot of the unknowns, I think, that people had at that time. And as you muddle through the reports of what happened in Texas to cause this exposure, it becomes increasingly frustrating to see just how badly the hospital let staff down from not having the proper equipment and resources and protocols available to take care of Thomas. So I feel like in order to understand what happened, I need to sort of reveal maybe some things that happen in the hospital, behind the scenes, whatever you want to call it. So allow me to take you behind those scenes of what happens when you have a patient you need to take care of who is on a strict isolation protocol. So let's say you've got a patient who has got a nasty virus. Say something like C. diff, but they've also got the flu, which is a rough go for that patient, no doubt. So you place that patient on isolation, and that means additional precautions are taken before you even set foot into that patient's room. One of those things being that that door is closed at all times, 
And there's usually a cart in front of that patient's room that indicates to people that they need to take certain precautions before they actually go into the room. So depending on what kind of precautions that patient's under, you'll sometimes find yourself wearing a mask, an isolation gown that goes over your scrubs or clothing, and gloves. And sometimes I just wonder how many gloves I go through in one shifts. Things we say now. So the process is called donning your gear and the process for taking it off is called doffing your gear, which is not hoffing your gear, which would be like if David Hasselhoff had to doff. Never mind. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole. Anyways, this personal protective equipment, the PPE, doesn't just apply to healthcare providers and hospital personnel. It does extend to all visitors to that patient's room as well. I can distinctly recall having to wear a gown and gloves in order to visit certain family members in the hospital when they were on precautions due to certain viruses. So the point of PPE is to minimize and hopefully outright prevent the transmission of the organism from going from patient to patient or patient to friend or patient to family member. For the most part, the protocols work and you don't become a vessel to dole out viruses and such like you're a weird car dealer in Vegas. Pick a virus, any virus, spin the wheel. We use PPE constantly in the hospital, and that stuff can just get really warm really fast when you're doing something like cleaning a patient, a linen change, and then other tasks. So you try and cluster all of your care so you can do as many tasks as possible all at once for that patient. Again, minimizing the exposure risk for that patient for yourself. One of the more intense times I had to wear PPE was when I had a patient that had meningitis and was not doing well. So myself and the doctor actually had to stay in the patient's room for close to two hours doing procedures. And I can tell you, when I finally got to set foot outside of that room, I was pretty sure I was like drenched in sweat. It was like being in a sauna. Those isolation gowns just do not breathe at all. And just for further clarification, We don't wear the big hazmat bunny suits, biohazard suits with patients for the most part. And I think that's something to keep in mind, especially for this episode. The closest I get to that is when sometimes I have to wear white coveralls like painters do when you're about to go into a decontamination setting and you're about to do some intense cleaning and cleansing of certain patients. My heart just breaks for those patients. It's just tragic sometimes at how people are found in their homes and they come to you in the ER. Just make sure you checked on your loved ones that you haven't heard from in a while. Please just make sure you do that. But with all this PPE background in mind, when Thomas Eric Duncan was suspected to have Ebola, they had evacuated the ICU and given him his own part of the unit, his own room, probably his own airflow system. Sometimes with certain isolation rooms, you can actually do a negative pressure room. So you try and account for the fact that you're not going to contaminate shared airspaces as a result of whatever that person might have. So there was also a dedicated team of healthcare providers that named themselves Team Ebola that took care of him. And they connected with him, they held each other when he died, and Nina Pham would later say, when asked if she would do it all over again, she would. As she says, it's a nurse's duty. People risked their lives to take care of me, and I'd want to do the same. 
See, that's what happens when you work in healthcare. You hope that your hospital has resources and equipment to keep you safe while you take care of high-risk patients. But either way, you're going to take care of them nonetheless. I've taken care of numerous patients that were either confirmed or suspected of having pretty contagious diseases, especially during flu season. Through training, expertise, and protocols, you minimize transmission of this disease from patient to patient or from patient to yourself. And that's how things normally go for the most part in the hospital. And it's been shown to work. However, when the hospital lets down its staff and makes work conditions unsafe, you sure as shit sue the hell out of them. And that's exactly what Nina Pham did. She ended up suing her hospital and, as an extension of that, her employer's parent company, Texas Health Resources, over what she says were inadequate health safety protocols. Her lawsuit alleged that supervisors merely printed out internet materials as precautionary guidelines for treating suspected Ebola patients, and that the organization, quote, wholly failed to ensure that appropriate policies, procedures, and equipment were in place, end quote. Health workers reportedly didn't receive proper hazmat garments or training, and Nina was told she had no risk of contracting Ebola just days before her diagnosis. Now, eventually, Nina and the THR came to a settlement. Now, finding follow-up for what happened to Amber was kind of difficult. She has been a little bit more private, but finding follow-up for what happened to Nina was a bit easier. She still suffers from the after-effects of the treatment she received. Hair loss, fatigue, and body aches that hurt her to the bone have kept her from the bedside. She still has nightmares from her experience of going into that room, of seeing it all played out over and over. And in the latest article I found on her post-having her Ebola exposure, she, again, was not a bedside nurse, something she seemed to miss. But Nina now speaks about her experience and is an advocate for improving hospital protocols and safety for its workers. When giving a talk at Texas Christian University to medical students and nursing students, she said, quote, You are the front line. It might not be Ebola the next time. The next thing is coming. They teach us to advocate for our patients. We have to advocate for ourselves as well. End quote. Now, there are some things to note. The CDC did revise its protocols by mid-October of 2014, that they ended up rolling out nationwide to EMS and hospitals regarding the proper donning and doffing of PPE. Also, during the contact tracing for Nina Pham post-exposure, her cocker spaniel Bentley had to be quarantined for a while, but was cleared after being monitored by Dallas Animal Control. And Nina even jokes about how everybody always asks about her dog and how Bentley's doing sometimes before they ask about how Nina's doing. Now, both Amber and Nina had no moment that they could pinpoint where they had been exposed to Thomas's bodily fluids or can really say when they contracted Ebola. So it still remains unknown how it happened. Oh, and if you're out there wondering what happened to CDC Director Dr. Tom Frieden, well, buckle up. He resigned in 2017 from the CDC to become the president of Resolve to Save Lives, 
which from their website is an initiative housed at a nonprofit global health organization, Vital Strategies, that is trying to strengthen the public health system internationally. And then in August 2018, he was arrested in New York, where he was charged with sexual abuse in the third degree, harassment in the second degree, and forcible touching. Charges that he has pled not guilty to, and as far as I know, might end up going to trial this year, as there is no plea deal at the time of this recording. Now, maybe the biggest thing to note is that for a few months or so in the United States, we all had to have a crash course about what Ebola was. And at least in healthcare, it was a wake-up call regarding hospital protocols and the safety of healthcare providers. Now, fast forward about one year later, I was taking care of a patient who had recently returned from Africa from a research trip who had been experiencing fevers, diarrhea, and vomiting. We had already been in contact with the CDC prior to this patient arriving to our facility, and they had cleared the patient from anything like Ebola or hemorrhagic fever based on the description of symptoms, but they made sure to keep in contact with our doctors as well as anybody who was associated with his care, just so that they knew what we were doing treatment options-wise and how the patient was doing overall. So in the end, it turned out to be a flu-like illness and the prognosis was good for the patient. But Ebola was still fresh in everyone's mind, and Ebola is still, to this day, a major issue in parts of West Africa. Now, the neat thing is, in light of what happened in the United States, and the race to essentially save the lives of these nurses, vaccinations that had been somewhat, we'll say, stalled in their development, got expedited. And now there has been a major, major push in Africa to vaccinate more people, and it's been shown to be very effective. But what's to say that this can't happen again in the United States, the UK, or another country that doesn't regularly see something like Ebola? And maybe it's not Ebola. Like Nina said, it could be something else. Are hospitals really prepared for that? Can we honestly say that we are looking out for EMS and first responders who establish that first contact with these patients? I believe that we are doing better in identifying patients who might be high risk. As every hospital I have worked at, especially since 2014, has had a screen every patient on any recent travel outside the country. It's something that we have to zero in on from the first encounter we have with a patient. And as far as I know, the doctor is able to see that the travel screening has been done relatively easily. If you'll remember from the previous episode, the first time Thomas came to the ER, it was mentioned by the nurse in a note that he had recently come from Africa. However, a note might not have been easily accessible to the doctor to see, and that could have possibly been something that he could have pursued. In this new way of screening patients, like I said, as far as I know, Doctors and other providers are able to see that a travel screening has been done and access the answers to that travel screening. But if anything that this whole entire thing taught healthcare providers is that we need to advocate for ourselves as much as we advocate for our patients. And hospitals need to implement precautions and protocols that keep their staff safe, but is also consistent as well as up to date. If they lack the proper equipment and resources to keep their staff safe in regards to taking care of high-risk patients, 
that needs to change immediately. Dallas taught a lot of hospitals nationwide just how woefully unprepared they are in protecting staff in treating high-risk patients. Now, it started the conversation, but there is still so much more for hospitals to improve on. Protecting first responders, protecting other patients, it's all things that need to be addressed now before another disease forces it to be addressed. The blame game that followed Dallas did nothing to help this. Having nurses like Nina Pham advocating for safety for all healthcare providers and hospital staff is what changes things and lays the foundation to keep people safe in the future. Okay, so let me sidestep off of my soapbox that I didn't realize I had stepped on and just close out by saying thank you for listening. Now, if you have any ideas or suggestions for show topics, by all means, send me a message, peoplearewildpod at gmail.com, and be good to yourself this week, practice random acts of kindness, and remember, vaccines save lives.